Thanks, Adam. <clears throat> New Denver Church, how are we this morning? Wow, really? Okay. Po- the positivity. This is that point, right? This is like mid-December. This is where we start to feel it a little bit more. I don't know if you're like me, but uh, I am on my string of tonight will be the fourth straight night of some sort of holiday activity. Uh, sorry, fifth. Tonight's the fifth. So, you know, all good things, great, but it starts to add up a little bit, start to feel a little tired. I hope, the point is, I hope you're making some time to slow down. Uh, Matt said this at the beginning, but this is what Advent's about. It's a season to slow down and to, to, to reflect, to contemplate, to enter into that feeling of longing maybe you have uh, in different areas of your life. But it doesn't happen automatically, five straight nights of things to do. Like, it didn't, doesn't just happen. So I hope you're making some time to slow down. Maybe this morning is part of that. For you. If you need to zone out while I'm talking, that's cool. If you need to take a nap, that's cool. Maybe consult the person sitting next to you so you don't wake up in a stranger's lap. That could be weird, um, but we hope you find some of that this morning. If, uh, if you're new or if you're visiting with us or if we haven't met, my name is Stephen, one of the pastors here. And um, as Matt said at the outset, we're, the begin- we're in the season of Advent. We're still going through this series uh, called What Child Is This? And if you're new to church or maybe just new to Advent, um, um, I grew up in a church where we didn't celebrate Advent. First time I ever did it, it was helping lead it, which is kind of a weird thing. But uh, Advent is a season of time. It's four weeks leading up to the celebration of Christmas. And traditionally, the way that, that Christians around the world have celebrated it uh, has varied a lot. But if I were to sum it up, it would be uh, a time to enter into that feeling of longing that things are not quite the way they should be. Uh, to look back and to remember that Israel for centuries longed and looked for uh, what they had waited for, which was the Messiah. And then Jesus came and, and we realized that he left and he said he would come back. And so we're still waiting. We're waiting for the good that Jesus brings into our life and we're hoping and anticipating for that now. And we're also looking forward to a sort of fullness of that in the future. And so as we've marked the Sundays this year, we've been going through this series, What Child Is This? And we've been asking the question, who is this Jesus? Who is this baby that was born that we celebrate every year, that eight pound, six ounce precious baby Jesus that we love so much? Um, who, was he? who was he? Who is he? Why do we keep coming back to his life? Why does his life still matter so much to us 2,000 years later? And we've looked at, at the different roles or aspects of Jesus's life that are important to us, that are still important to us today. And I want to take a look at at one this morning that I think literally changes everything about how we think what it means to have a relationship with God. I think it literally changes everything about that. And I want to start, I, I think we see this in Jesus's life, we see this emerge in his life when we look at Jesus's relationships. I want to look this morning at the relationships that Jesus had, the people that he was drawn to, that he was close to, that he spent time with, but also the people that he regularly had conflict with, the people he didn't get along with. Because I think we can learn a lot when we look at people's relationships. I think we can look, learn a lot about ourselves when we look at our relationships. I want you to take some time this week at some point. We're putting these questions online for reflection and contemplation uh, newdenver.org slash advent. One of the questions this week is I want you to consider what do the relationships in your life, what would they tell people about you? What, do they, what insight do they give you about you? Who, who are the people that you spend time around that you're friends with, that you are drawn to, close to, uh, love being around? What, what does that say about you? What, what do your friends say about you? 
And at the same time, if people were to look at the people that you disagree with most often, that you conflict with, that you butt heads with, what would that tell us about you? Because when we look at Jesus's life, we learn a lot from those things about him, about his relationships. So who were the people, when we think back about Jesus's life, who were the people that Jesus was drawn to, that he was friends with, that he, he created his closest circle of associates out of? Who were those people? Anybody, just those of you who know Jesus' story, if you read the Bible or if you haven't, you just know something about Jesus. Who were the people Jesus was drawn to? Poor and needy. Right. What else? Somebody over here was the what? The disabled. Right. People who were not, who had some sort of physical disablement or mental disablement. Outcasts. Right. In the first service, uh, Bruce said reprobates. I was like, wow, that's, that's like a 10-cent word. That's a complicated one. Yeah, people who existed on the fringe of society. It, it's interesting. We learn a lot about Jesus. He seems to be drawn to these people, and they seem to be drawn to him, and he welcomes them. It didn't matter what was going on in their life, what physical, mental, relational, spiritual disabilities that they might have. He welcomed the people who were not just poor, materially, he did, but there were rich people who came to him too who recognized that there was a poverty in their spirit, that they had a lot of things, but they were empty on the inside. Humility was a big part of what drew people to Jesus and what, what, what made Jesus so attractive. What about the people that Jesus regularly butted head with, heads with, that he had conflict with? What were those people like? Who were those people? Religious leaders. Religious leaders. Yeah, churchy people. Jesus did not like churchy people. What, what else? What was it about them that he didn't like? They were rule followers. Okay, yeah. Big time. Other things? They were self-righteous. They didn't think they needed any help. They were doing it all right. We're good. We don't need you and your teaching. We're fine. Yeah, over and over and over again, we see this. When we think about Jesus' life, we look at him and we recognize that he was drawn to people that the rest of the world seemed to overlook. And and he seemed to see something in them, a need, a desire, a want for what only God could provide for them. And at the same time, he was incredibly critical of the religious establishment of his day. The priests, the Levites, the ruling Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish religious council of the time, the high priest. He was very, very, you know, critical of, of, their, of their, the way that they treated people and the way that they seemed to expect the rules to come first and not people to come first. Now, it's interesting to understand, to step back and to see in the context of the, the world that they lived in, what these people were like the religious leaders that Jesus was butting heads with and the role that they played. Uh, because priests was not a, that, that wasn't a, um, a role or a function that was unique to the Jewish people. I, I mean, every culture in time that has sort of tried to apprehend the nature of the divine has, has had this idea that there needs to be some kind of a mediator, some kind of a go-between between people and God Regardless of what that belief system is, whether they call them priests or shamans or mystics or, or whatever, every culture that seems to try to apprehend the divine has this concept of the priest. 
And that was included into the way that God structured the way he would have relationships with the nation of Israel. When he established the nation and he gives the law to Moses, it includes a lot of specific detail about ways that one of the tribes of Israel and and some of the, the, the descendants of Aaron were supposed to play this mediatorial role. That they were supposed to mediate on behalf of God to the people and mediate on behalf of the people to God. And there were a lot of rules. If you were here last year, you remember Norton took us through the book of Leviticus. There were a lot of rules, so many rules. Sacrifices and rituals and blood, so much blood. Lots of blood, right? Like for the sacrifice and the atonement of the nation's sins. And over and over and over again, they would do these same things and they led the people in the way that God had told them that they were to, what, in the things that they were supposed to do to continue in relationship with him. But what's interesting is like so many things over time, that role and that group of people and the function that they played in Jewish society changed. And so by the time of Jesus, as, as Israel is no longer an independent nation, it's an occupied nation, the Roman Empire, it's a, simply a province of the Roman Empire, And so Rome holds political, military, economic power over the region. But what's interesting is the Romans, they allowed a certain amount of autonomy to everybody that they conquered. And the people that they conquered, they gave some some sort of, of governance and leadership to. And the Jewish religious leaders had taken on not just religious power. They now had, it was a social strata. They were wealthy. They were well to do. They also had political power. They were one of the groups that the Romans would go to anytime there was a disturbance or a problem in trying to figure out how they were to act, they would consult and go to the Jewish religious leaders. So they had a lot of political power as well. And so Jesus continues to, to have these interactions with him and he continues to call them out that they're missing the point, that they're not playing their primary role of mediating in their relationship with God, that they're making it harder for people to come to God. The people who are desperate, who are hurting, who are hungry, who are hungry for God, who have a sense of need, who are poor, not just in material possessions, but poor in spirit, wanting and desiring to see God come into their life. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, the priests of Jesus' day were making it more difficult. And so Jesus had a number of really tense interactions with him. When you read through the Gospels, he is not a nice guy to these people. I mean, we think about Jesus all nice, meek and mild, but man, he hammered, railed against these people. Just listen to a few of the pet names that Jesus likes to call these folks over and over again. Foolish people, he called them. That's not very nice, Jesus. Serpents, a generation of vipers. Blind guides, he said, you don't even know where you're going and you're You're asking people to follow you. You're just leading, you're the blind leading the blind. Children of hell. Can you say that, Jesus? Can we say that in church? Can you call people children of hell? Jesus did. That's what he called the religious leaders of his day. Unmarked grave, whitewashed tombs, and Jesus' personal favorite, hypocrite. He used this one more than any other. In the 23rd chapter of Matthew, Matthew puts together all of these, the woes to the Pharisees, all of these things that Jesus pronounced against the religious leaders of his time. Woe to you. 
And over and over again, seven times he calls them hypocrites. Listen to just one example. Matthew 23, starting in verse 27. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Yikes. Not very nice, Jesus. Right to the point. When we look at his interactions with people over and over and over again, we see he's drawn to people who are genuine, unpretentious, not self-righteous. They recognize the need in themselves for God and they come humbly looking for something, looking for healing, physical, emotional, relational, spiritual healing. He honors the people who humble themselves and recognize their need. But he is brutal in his condemnation of the people who are hypocritical who seem to put on an appearance that everything is fine, while on the inside, they're a total mess, total wreck. They put on the appearance of being good and righteous and generous, but on the inside, they're unforgiving and judgmental towards others. And he was especially critical of those who did that from a place or a position of religious and spiritual influence in the community. That's why he calls them blind guides. He says you're leading people and you're blind yourself. He never lets up, never lets up in his criticism of them. He's such a vocal critic that in the end, they can't tolerate him anymore. He's too great of a threat to their religious authority, to their social standing, and to their political power. Doesn't matter how many messianic prophecies he he fulfills. It doesn't matter how many miraculous signs he provides or how many people are healed by him. In the end, Jesus is too great of a threat for their power. And so they have him arrested, tried, and executed. Done deal. Problem solved. Except they missed who Jesus was. So the grave could not hold him. Death could not constrain him. He rose victorious over death, validating all of the things that had been written about him in the prophecies of the Old Testament, all of the things that he had said about himself claiming to be the Son of God. And after his resurrection, he gathered all of his followers together and he said, the fullness of the kingdom that I promised you, the reconciliation and the redemption of all things, That's still in the future. I'll be back. But until then, I want you to take this message of hope and healing and restoration into the world. And I want you to let people know, no matter what's happened in their lives, no matter what they've done, they can come directly to God. They don't need a priest. They don't need a bishop. They don't need a shaman. They don't need a mystic. I'm going to send the Spirit of God, my presence, my unseen presence who will be with you and who will be in you and will allow you at any place, at any time, anywhere in the world to connect directly with me. And I'll be sitting at the right hand of the Father, mediating on your behalf. Whatever you ask in my name, whatever you ask for me, I promise, whatever you say to me, I hear it. Doesn't mean I'm always going to do what you ask. But you can know that you can come directly to me without anyone else standing in the way.
this function, this role of mediator between God and the people is something that had been in existence since the the beginning of the the nation of Israel. And so they struggled early on. This concept that we can go directly to God was something that really was confusing for Jewish Christians, for the the first men and women who began to follow the way of Jesus and to trust and believe that he was the Messiah, he was the Son of God. We can accept that what he did on the cross was for us. It was difficult for them to wrap their minds around what now? How are we to live our lives? As Jewish followers of the Messiah, do we still continue to go to the temple? Do we still need to follow all of the dietary laws and all of the other things that Leviticus and the law and everything taught us that we are to do? Do we still need to go to the priests to offer sacrifices on our behalf when Jesus told us that he is our sacrifice once and for all? And so someone, a man or a woman, someone we don't know who the author was, sat down and wrote this amazing letter that circulated among the early churches. And in the letter, this writer, the the letter has become known as the book of Hebrews. And it's written as that because it was written to Jewish followers of Jesus to explain to them how all of the things that exist in their faith, their Jewish faith, the faith that they were handed down from their ancestors were fulfilled, not replaced or eliminated, but fulfilled in Jesus. And in this letter, the author explains how Jesus fulfills once and for all the function of mediator between us and God. Listen to how he says it. In Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 27, he says this, Now, there have been many of those priests, those being the the, the Jewish priests that have existed through time, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. What he says here is that all of the priests who went before We're just a temporary solution to the problem of man's disconnection from God. And God prescribed a way for them to be obedient and to to mediate between God and his people and his people and, and and, and God so that they could be connected, making sacrifices for themselves and for the people over and over and over and over again. And and at best, that's all they could do was faithfully follow God's command. And I'm sure there were many, many wonderful priests who did their jobs faithfully over and over and over again. But they couldn't fulfill what God's ultimate purpose was. And at worst, they would become what Jesus encountered, which is people who suddenly recognize there's power in being able to be the mediator between people and God. And when you have that power... You have the capacity, the ability to suddenly allow yourself to profit or benefit from that imbalance of relationship that you have between other people because you're their gateway to God. 
What kind of abuses, what kind of terrible things have been done by people who hold that place of mediation between us and between God? And the implications of this for us are immense. We don't need someone to stand between us and God. Because of Jesus, Jesus says, you can come directly to me. By my spirit who's present with you and in you, you can always come directly to me. You don't need an intermediary. Listen to how the author of of Hebrews talks to the people in his time, and I think through the ages speaks to us about the amazing implications of what this means. Chapter 10, he says this, Therefore, therefore, in light of this, Brothers and sisters, since we have the confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, the most holy place was that place in the middle of the tabernacle, the middle of the temple where God's presence was said to rest. The author says you can come to the real most holy place, the presence of God at any time. How? By the blood of Jesus by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that separated the people from the most holy place that only the, the great high priest could enter into that and only then once a year. No, a new way has been opened for us through the curtain. That is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. All of ourselves coming to God. And with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we might spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day, that day of Jesus' return and God's judgment coming. The implications that the writer of Hebrews talked about 2,000 years ago are still true and important for us today because of what Jesus has done, because of His payment on the cross. We can come how with confidence to God. We can come with confidence that He took on once and for all the payment for all of our sins. We don't have to look to priests or bishops or shamans or mystics or anyone else to mediate between us and God. We can come to God just as we are, not as we should be, because newsflash, none of us are as we should be. None of us. Not even the priests, the bishops, the pastors, none of us are as we should be. And look what he says. Because we have Jesus Standing at the right hand of the Father, mediating on our behalf. We can draw near to God. How? With a sincere heart, authentically bringing all of ourselves to God. We don't have to project an image that we have it all together. We can be honest about our need. Those are the people that Jesus spent time around that were drawn to, that he was drawn to, and that they were drawn to him. People who brought all of themselves and were honest, authentic, without pretense about our faults and our failures. And with full assurance that faith brings. Our faith and our confidence in what Jesus has done once and for all is what allows us to go with confidence before God, knowing that it's not about how great we are. It's about what Jesus has done for us. 
We can go and know that we are already forgiven for what we have done and for what we have left undone, for the ways we have not loved God with our whole hearts and we've not loved others as ourselves. And he continues telling them, don't just stop there. Continue meeting together. Continue encouraging one another. Continue exhorting one another. Spurring one another on towards what? Towards love and good deeds. A tangible expression of the reality of who we are should be to bring that love, that acceptance, that grace to a hurt, hurting and broken world. And we need to keep gathering together just like we are today. Not because this is new news. Many of you have heard this many times before, but we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded that this is true. We need to be reminded that we can come to Jesus, that he invites us to bring all of ourselves to him. We need to be reminded that we need to live out of this reality, that this is who we, we truly are. At the deepest place in in ourselves, when God looks at us, he sees the perfection of his son. And that's true for us who've accepted that grace. We need to be reminded of who we are and whose we are. And we need to not give that up, but continue doing that together over and over. And we need to find ways to remind ourselves. One way that we remind ourselves is how we're going to end today. We're going to celebrate communion together. Communion, quite simply, is a practice that has been in existence since the early church. It originates in a meal that Jesus spent with that ragtag bunch of friends and disciples. The night before he went to the cross, they gathered for a meal, a Passover meal. A meal that was symbolic about God's provision for them in the past when they came out of Egypt. When they remembered the sacrifice of an unblemished lamb and the blood that was put on the doorpost so that God's wrath would pass over. And Jesus told them, they didn't get it that night, but he told them, I am the true Passover lamb. I am the forgiveness that allows God's judgment to pass over you. That night at that dinner, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, he took the wine and he poured it and he said, This wine is the blood of a new covenant, a new way of being in relationship with God that doesn't require any other intermediaries. A new covenant in my blood. Take this in remembrance of me. And as the early church began to apprehend and understand this, they began to practice this regularly. The Apostle Paul writes and says that as often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns in the future to bring the fullness of the kingdom. And in New Denver, the way that we practice this is once a month, we, we, we set the elements on the table, the bread and the juice representing the wine, and, and we invite everyone to come. This table is open just the way Jesus was open. Don't put any prerequisites on you. There's nobody who's going to serve you. No priest, no pastor, no intermediary between you and taking the elements and remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made for you.